Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio and our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I'm Lewis Friedberg. John is away today on assignment, but he'll be back next week. California schools are participating in what is effectively a giant experiment that has never been attempted before. Within a couple of weeks, nearly 6 million public school children will be taking all their classes online. That's not an occasional course here or there, but the entire school curriculum. This isn't something that school districts have taken on by choice, or parents or teachers for that matter. It's been forced on them by the coronavirus that continues to spread across the state. Yet to be determined is the extent to which teachers are prepared to deliver instruction remotely, whether they'll be able to hold students' attention for weeks or months or even longer, and how much students will learn compared to being in a regular classroom. One area of the state that's been most deeply affected is California's Central Valley, sometimes called the Appalachia of the West. The region has been hard hit by the pandemic, with infection rates far higher than other parts of the state. The valley is also home to a disproportionate share of young people living in low-income households, and many of them struggle to achieve their academic goals. This week, we'll take a closer look at the Central Valley and how one of its largest school districts, Stockton Unified, is handling the distance learning experiment. We'll talk with its superintendent, Brian Biederman, in a few minutes. But first, we are pleased to have with us Don Shalvey. Don has been contributing to California education for decades, as many of you know. His first teaching job a half century ago was in Merced in California's Central Valley. He went on to work in Lodi, became a superintendent in San Carlos, and was the founder of the state's first charter school and only the second one in the country. For the last 11 years, he's uh, been spending his time on the national stage at the Gates Foundation, but he has maintained his roots in the Central Valley throughout, and he's now taken over as executive director of San Joaquin A+. It's an organization based in Stockton, dedicated to improving education outcomes for young people in the Valley. The organization recently conducted a poll of parents, and I asked Don what the poll found. I think the big headline is parents and students are pretty anxious and exhausted right now as a result of COVID-19. I mean, 77% of the parents in this area said they're anxious and exhausted. And 50% of those students that we interviewed, either directly or through their parents, reported feeling depressed or stressed or anxious about the result of COVID school closures and now going back under a distance learning setting, for sure. You are pointing to the fact that, or not only parents or probably students too, I mean, need mental health support during this crisis. It is everyone, Lewis, really. I mean, we looked at the Gallup poll results where 75% of all K-12 teachers are moderately to very concerned about being exposed to coronavirus at their place of work. And that's up from 59% in May and 67% in June. So the anxiety is just growing. You know, 44% of parents said they might be willing to send their children back to school. And and that's down from 49 and down from 54%. So the sense of need for safety is just growing along with the anxiety. The poll referred to parents being exhausted. What do you think that's all about? For parents, they now are really doing three jobs at one time. 
the important job of being a caring parent, the important job of essentially being the co-teacher in their youngster's uh, virtual classroom. And then most of our parents have full-time jobs and in many cases, two jobs that they are sometimes trying to manage, as well as managing the rest of what I would call the education family team, which are older siblings or younger siblings. You're juggling a lot of bowling pins here. And many of the workers are not people who can work from home, do their jobs from their houses. I mean, these are people who have to be out in restaurants, service sector. Service industries and the ag industries are taking parents out of their homes leaving older siblings to do parental care while their youngsters are, you know, attempting to learn from, you know, a group of really committed, caring teachers who are just learning this mode of instruction, quite frankly. So Don, tell us about what you think can be done. I mean, in terms of solutions or if not solutions, at least responses. And I guess there's a short term and then there's a longer term that we're talking about. Yeah, I think the short-term play, Lewis, is to just acknowledge that this is a new learning setting for everyone. I taught an online course a couple of times just to understand how to do it, and I felt like it was a harder first step than, than being 16 trying to get my driver's license. It is tough sledding to change your pedagogical practices. So we just have to be patient with teachers who want to do a really good job. We have to be patient with the technology that is, you know, crashing on a regular basis. I think we're going to get suboptimal learning for a while in this setting. And then we really have to think about when we're able to return to schools and we're able to return to the important extra and co-curricular and community activities that can take place that I think as a community and a school system, we have to double down when that period of time kicks in again. I mean, literally there's been no parks and recreation. There's been no 4-H. There's been no athletics. There's been no visual performing arts. All of these extracurricular activities, community services, boys and girls clubs, all have to align with the school system to have a collective impact to make up the loss that's clearly there. You mentioned the word loss. I mean, this is now something that's part of the vocabulary. You're, you're an educator, so people have always been concerned about learning loss over the summer. Now we're talking about learning loss during the whole year. Yeah. And we're talking about a student population that on average was way behind already. Do you have a concern that many students will fall even further behind now? I do, Lewis. First of all, when you compare the performance in San Joaquin County to national performance, the typical student is about eight months behind. Latinx students are 1.4 years behind the national average and African-American youth over 2.3 years behind. That was the case before COVID-19. There's real work to be done. You know, summer melt would be a good thing compared to the melt that we have right now, which I think is going to be a year's worth of melt. And you cannot make up that year or two or three by doing the same thing you've always done. I think about the, the number of young people at the University of Pacific, Cal State, Stanislaus, Delta College, who we should really commit to being strong, 
peer tutors for these young people to partner and pair them with their youngsters' teachers to see where they can bring some additional support. This is going to be done in church settings, in rec settings. We have to coordinate our efforts, Lewis. Talking with Don Shalvi, uh, the uh, executive director, new executive director of San Joaquin A+. Now, I understand that you're going to be making some grants to try to get more students in college. Tell us a little bit about that, Don. When we looked at one of the clear long-term ways to increase college graduates in the area that get either an AA or a, or a BA and a meaningful certification, with an occupational identity that matters here. We looked at the early college high school model, and that model is proven out in Texas and North Carolina and in New York, and actually in a few places in California. So we've invited nine organizations to submit plans to open autonomous, either district or charter, early college high schools aligned with a career pathway that has labor market needs in the area. These will, we believe, accelerate the number of young people who get an AA and get a BA at at rates higher than we see now. And just for the benefit of people who may not know what the early college high school is, what, what is that, Don? It is a program in which youngsters begin to take college coursework as early as ninth grade. And when they begin to enter 11th grade, they're doing a blend of high school work and college work. And that college work aligns to a meaningful certification coming out of a community college like Modesto JC or Delta College, or in some cases, the University of Pacific, in areas like the ag careers of vet tech, the ag careers of irrigation, you know, the ag careers of, of growing and vintnology. And, you know, when they leave high school, they leave high school with an AA or a significant number of transferable credits that allow them to enter college as a sophomore or a junior. And the cost savings and time savings, you know, are significant. And it's shown to be been quite effective. It's quite effective across the country. And we think that San Joaquin and Stanislaus counties, as I'm calling them, San Joaquin County, can be a hotbed and an incubator for these early college high schools. And the organizations, including Stockton Unified, Lodi Unified, Delta College, University of Pacific, Modesto JC, and the San Joaquin and, and Stanislaus County Offices of Education are all developing proposals right now. I think a lot of people in the Central Valley would feel that it's been ignored, not enough attention paid to it. I just read an article comparing this to Appalachia. It's uh, The poverty is on that level. But I don't think most Californians see it that way. Is that the sense you have? I have lived in the Valley most of my life now, and um, and and feel like we often are overlooked and taken for granted. We conceal more than we reveal about the good things going on in the Central Valley. The need is clearly great, but there are no finer people than those folks who grow things for the rest of us. And for those folks who who care every day about the environment and the conditions here. We've been talking with Don Shalvey, 
Executive Director of San Joaquin A+. Thanks for joining us today, Don. Thanks, Lewis, and thanks for all the good work you do. We are now going to drill down to look at how the first two weeks of distance learning are playing out in Stockton Unified, at least through the eyes of its interim superintendent, Brian Biederman. He's been in the district for decades as a teacher, principal, and administrator. He just took over the district's leadership after the abrupt departure of John Dacey in July, who had been in Stockton for only two years, and he came there after heading up Los Angeles Unified, the state's largest school district. This is a tough time to be a superintendent in any district, but Stockton presents some additional challenges. With 40,000 students, Stockton is one of the largest in the state, and 98% of its students qualify for free and reduced-priced meals. 98% of its students are also students of color. So how the district traverses this crisis has great implications for districts large and small across the state. It was one of the first school districts in California to open its doors to distance learning. Its first day was on August 3rd. And I asked Superintendent Biederman how distance learning has been going so far. Right now on the surface, they're going well. Kids are connecting. Our technology has been deployed with Chromebooks. We do have connectivity issues with our hotspots. Uh, But for the most part, kids are connecting, adults are connecting. The things that I can't see is the kids that haven't connected for whatever reason. And some of them haven't connected since we left in our shelter in place in the spring. So it's deploying our child welfare and attendance folks, our social workers, our mental health clinicians to find out why those students haven't connected, what's getting in their way of connecting. Is it simply a hotspot or has life happened and they're just having difficulty prioritizing school? So we are in day nine. We are fleshing out the population that hasn't connected and then deploying the individuals to ensure that they can connect. And the kids that are connecting, it's just making sure that our virtual instruction would match the rigorous instruction that they would have received live. But out of the 40,000 then, how many approximately haven't connected? It's difficult to iron out the data, but it's looking at anywhere from 8 to 10% right now. Some of that data is is misleading because it could be the student simply moved and we are just not aware of it yet. So how many of the 8 to 10% are actually kids that are in our system, still in our system, and haven't connected? So we're really trying to clean up our data to give us a clearer picture of what hasn't connected that belongs to us. And if they are, what are we doing about it to connect them? I mean, one of the big issues is that I think there's general recognition that distance learning did not go so well in the spring. Are teachers better prepared now? I mean, were you able to do any professional development training over the summer? I mean, what's your sense of that? Yeah, great question. When we left in the spring, it was just a mad dash. Nobody knew what was going on, and it was not anything that we wanted it to be. Uh, Knowing that we were potentially going to open up on distance learning in the fall, we had a heavy PD calendar for our teachers to get them comfortable with Google Classroom, Zoom, get them comfortable with technology so they were able to access it for their kids. So there's a lot of professional development that happened. There was also professional development that we are developing for parents so they know how to log into Zoom and support their kids at home. And it was part of our MOU development with our teacher unions at what is distance learning going to look like and how are we going to track it. Our state has uh, AB 77 that has clear expectations on what distance learning, if we are in distance learning, what that will look like. And it's nothing compared to what it was in the spring. We opened up ready to go with a clear plan. 
Our teachers knew what that was. Our community knew what that was. And we're still doing professional development. Uh, we realize that some of our adults in our system need a little bit more than others, and that's fine. So we have options for them to get more comfortable with the technology that they're utilizing for their students. Oh, well, that's very encouraging. But in terms of this professional development that you offered, was that required or was it, were teachers paid extra to do that? How did that work? So it, it was optional, but they were compensated. Over half of our teachers participated in the PD. Now that we are starting school, we do have built-in collaborative hours in PD that's not optional. It's required because that's part of their contract where that professional development will live and it can be targeted for the need on a certain site. Like one site might need it more than another. So now it's required. We have a tech cadre on our campuses that in real time they can assess the tech issues, not only for the adult, but for the, kid and, uh, for the kids and the families as well. We have our information technology department that is also on standby that can receive calls and provide support for our adults who need anything from a password reset to accessing certain websites on uh, like YouTube because they want to use a piece for that on a, on a lesson. So that's all available to them, not just for our staff, but for our kids and families as well. We're talking with Brian Biedemann. He's the interim superintendent at Stockton Unified. Now, of course, the other issue that you are dealing with in the Central Valley are these very high rates of coronavirus infections. And the Central Valley has really been impacted by a much greater extent than most parts of the state. Are you feeling that in your district? How are you experiencing that now? Definitely feeling it. Uh, our adults are concerned to come to work uh, because the numbers are so high and a lot Sorry, of them. And now these are the classified staff, the... Uh, the teachers are too. So we're looking at anything from certificated to classified. In our MOU, the teachers were very concerned that they wanted options. They wanted to be able to either come to school to work or stay home based on our numbers. So we did give them that option with the understanding that good instruction is good instruction, whether you're at home or at school. So we were, we we're going to track that and monitor that and then provide supports if needed. But our classified staff who can't necessarily work from home, they are definitely, because these are the, the, the hardworking employees that are doing food distribution for our kids, our counselors, our administrators who are all currently on campus because we are still in phase three in California. But there is a deep concern that the numbers in our, our area are so high and many of them have family members that have been exposed. So they're seeing this firsthand personally and still haven't come to work and ensure that we're safe. We're doing as best job as we can to be with the CDC guidelines and the county guidelines on wearing masks and the appropriate PPE for our employees, whether that is gloves or gowns for our special ed folks and whatever they need in order to be safe we are trying to provide we don't want our adults to be less productive because they're at work scared out of their minds that they're potentially going to contract covid and then bring that home to their family so it's it's real our students are equally as scared our hospitals are operating at 140 percent and above capacity so there are zero beds at, at most days that if somebody was to contract covid and have to be hospitalized. Um, that's a struggle right now. We have the United States Army is deployed at one of our hospitals that is literally about three miles away from my district office because they need additional support for the amount of people that they're intaking at the hospital with COVID. Are employees calling in sick? Have they been quarantined? Are you affected that way? Yeah, we do have employees that have called in sick that are considered at risk because they may have cancer and going through chemo and can't work. 
We do have employees on a daily basis that are calling in saying that there's an exposure that with a family member, do I quarantine? So they're asking a lot of the right questions and we're trying to provide them like, hey, okay, it is okay for you to come to work or not. You have to self-quarantine. We have protocols in place that we have our employees take temperature checks every day and log into a book so we can contact Trace if somebody was exposed. As of right now, knock on wood, this is August 13th, we've had zero employee to employee exposure. It's been more in the community. Employees have been uh, exposed in the community, at home, during an event, going to Target, whatever the case may be, and then having to self-quarantine. We've had zero contact on our campuses yet, but it, it is definitely felt and it's, it's a scare for sure. You referred to the fact that teachers are really feeling this. It's harder work than they've maybe ever had to do doing things that they weren't trained to do. Are they going to be able to sort of keep this going? I mean, this could go on for weeks, months, and I suppose maybe the entire year. Yeah, uh, that, that's a great question. And there's a lot of social emotional need for our adults right now because they're so used to having live contact with kids. And that is a balance for them. They come to work to kind of, you know, that, that vibe that when a kid succeeds, it's hard to replicate that right now. I've been on campuses and there are no kids. And it's the strangest feeling, Lewis, that the school has started and there's zero kids on your campus. It's just a different vibe, a different mentality. So our, our adults are struggling just like our kids are with that social emotional connection, that relationship piece. Um, so it's a lot of strain in our system. And we're trying to provide that emotional support for them and the professional development that they need moving forward. It's not like Stockton is a wealthy school district. Are you going to manage on this? How are you going to get through this on that front? We're fortunate that we have a lot of COVID relief money and learning loss mitigation money until December. So we have a, a good pot of money that, uh, depending on what our teachers and community needs in order to get through COVID, we have that until December. My worry is, uh, like you stated, Stockton is, I mean, there's a budget crisis all throughout California, throughout the nation. After December, what does that look like? So the longer that COVID goes on, the sustainability of what we're doing comes into question. And what are we going to do past December if this does, in fact, go throughout the year? It's, it's, it's a great question. It's a very uh, big concern of mine, uh, making sure that what we're doing now is sustainable past the December point. We've been talking with uh, Interim Superintendent Brian Biederman from Stockton Unified School District. Sounds like things are going well on one level, but uh, huge challenges on others. Good luck at your end, and I really appreciate you coming in today. I appreciate it. Thank you. And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Our producer is Kobe McDonald, still managing all of this remotely. Thanks, Kobe. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and its source's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. Stay well. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.